Hi everyone, welcome to HubShot's episode 141. We talk about HubSpot enterprise marketing and sales features and some Google Ads opportunities. You're listening to APAC's number one HubSpot-focused marketing podcast, where we discuss HubSpot tips, tricks, new features, and strategies for growing your marketing results. We hope you enjoy the podcast as much as HubSpot CEO Brian Halligan does. Thanks for creating this podcast. It's awesome. I listen to it on the weekends and I really enjoy it. My name is Ian Jacob from Search and Be Found, and with me is my co-host Craig Belly from Zen Systems. How are you, Craig? Oh, look, I'm great. And uh, just got hand gestures ahoy here. <laughs> You know what? We're looking at um, these HubSpot uh, market up uh, product update product videos. Update. Yes, gee, they're good. They've they've obviously had the media training. We're trying to learn from them, Correct. and ha- it's all in the hands. It's all in the hands. It's Craig. all in the hand gestures and managing those and keeping them under control, which we we do well, particularly on this podcast. I have That's to right. say. So if you watch the video of us next time, <laughs> just remember the hand gestures. It's all in the hands. Okay, on to our. Inbound thought of the week, Craig. Or thoughts of the week. Yes, thoughts. There is. So firstly, some listener feedback. Yes. And <laughs> thank you to Chris. Thanks to Chris Higgins for his tweet telling us he was listening. He was catching up on a whole bunch of episodes. And, uh, and we obviously put him to sleep. And we put him to sleep. So I joked with him on <laughs> Twitter about that. And folks, added feature I think I was suggesting of the show. If you are having trouble getting to sleep, then just you know, put in the earbuds and dial up the hub shots. We'll take care of that for you. But no, look, we do appreciate the shout out. So thanks, Chris. All right. Now we're going to talk about personas, Craig, and why they're fluid. And no one I've heard talks about this. So give me a little background. And this is something that you were discussing while you were working with a customer this week, right? Yeah, working with a client. And I guess sometimes you take things for granted and then you realize actually most people don't. So one of them is that personas are fluid, and that is someone can change personas over time and usually will, right? But there seems to be this understanding that once you're in a persona, you're always in a persona. And I was like, oh, no, that's not the case at all. And once we freed that up, it was okay. So I'll give you an example. This is in the health sector. And so you might have a persona, which is people 25 to 35 who are overweight. Let's say that's a persona or part of a persona, right? Then, well, all you've got to do is age, which most of us do, I think, get older and or lose weight, which is actually one of the goals that this company is trying to target. And they've moved out of that persona. So that's kind of like, in fact, someone moving out of that persona is a good thing. That's a win in terms of this particular client's products. So I just wanted to highlight that to people. And this is the other thing that we often run into with clients. They're like, oh, I've got to set my personas now. They can't change. Once they're set, they're set in stone. We're like, no, no, you can change them as you learn more information or targeting and feedback. Of course, you're going to change your personas. But not only can you change your personas, but people will move in and out of them. And that's a good thing and a, and a normal thing, I would have thought. So just putting that out there in case, um, yeah, you're grappling with that or it's limiting your personas. Often it can be limiting it and we want to free that up. Correct. And another thing to note, and I think I've talked about this before, is having the non-persona in there as well. So people that you don't want to talk to and being able to filter them out. All right. And on to this third item, Inbound Thought of the Week, Craig. Our community Thought of the Week, which is just that the Sydney Hug is on the 21st of November. Now, we're recording this on the 7th of November, so two weeks to go. But And we're already pretty full, actually. Yeah, it is limited. That's right. always wanted to say that. <laughs> limited seats. No, we are actually, we do actually have a cap on the night. So... And it, it is, is yeah. it is the final hug of the year. It is, yeah. So now for people that don't know how to hug, it's the <laughs> HubSpot user group that we run with other partners here in Sydney. 
And we'd love to see some of you there because it's a great way to build relationships and build community with other people that are using HubSpot and are also in the journey of marketing their businesses. That's right. And look, HubSpot run these all around the globe. They're in every country, uh, or not every country, but they're in tons of countries around the world. So wherever you are listening to this, uh, look out for a local um, HubSpot user group. Absolutely. Go along. There you learn a ton of stuff and uh, meet a ton of great people. All right, Craig, on to our HubSpot marketing feature of the week. And this is a lot to do with all the enterprise marketing features that have been rolled out. And there's quite a bit in here. So let's highlight a few. Yes. And just to go back a step and preface this, because enterprise has been a big focus of HubSpot this year. In fact, you could say in previous years, their starter or the the free editions was a big focus. And this year it's at the other end of the spectrum, which is enterprise. So to people that don't have enterprise, this might be... um, well, making you envious if nothing else, but I think it is worth knowing where the product's going because even as your company grows, you might only be on starter now or then you're in pro and then in the future, it's good to know these tools or what features are available and maybe that's something you want to grow into. But yeah, we're going to talk about some of their content, I guess, uh, management side of the marketing. So one is content partitioning and another is um, their brand domains. Yes, and a lot of this is to do with hosting multiple domains on a single portal. So one thing you could not do before, if you hosted, say you had three brands that you hosted on your HubSpot portal, you could actually not filter out the traffic and know which URL was getting what traffic. So a lot of that's been resolved now. Yeah, it is. So they've added filters and this is for blog posts, for landing pages and web pages. So that's quite nice. Uh, I will say, so this relates to brand domains that are hosted on HubSpot. And you might think, oh, why wouldn't they be? Well, for example, let's say you run a WordPress site and you have the HubSpot script on there. You can't really create a brand domain for that, even though it's on another site. And then you can't filter that out in reports, unfortunately, because I I know they're collecting the data. I think they would be able to allow it. But yeah, you you can't do that kind of at a, there's no way of doing it at a brand domain level. Yes. In some of the analytics uh, reports, you can do analytics views. But even there, they're having trouble. Well, I'm having trouble because I've been testing that just with some of the criteria filtering. Yep. They can't filter out at domain level. Mm. So they're kind of just um, all rolled into one. But look, the brand domain, certainly if you've got all your stuff on HubSpot, this is beautiful. Yes, it's exactly it's... what we've been after for ages. So, Correct. Yeah, really nice feature of enterprise. That's right. Now, another thing is the content partitioning of pages, landing pages and blogs. So. This is a perfect example of where you might have people in two organizations that don't see what the other organization is doing. So I have a customer that has a health division and then they have a other finance division that does, that services different types of clients. And what they're able to do is they're able to actually partition that. So the people in the health division can actually look at particular clients and also look at the blog posts and so on that go with it. Why this is important, because they seem to be, from what I understood sitting with one of, one of them this week, is that they're two very different businesses and then the way they operate and how they interact with the clients. So it was a really good insight into how this would work for them. Yeah, look, I think it's good. Um, last episode, we talked about setting up users and, and teams, and we also touched on contacts there. So you, there is that team so what, what you can control is access to contacts. So we covered that last episode and you can kind of say this user has access to whatever the team's got access to. This episode we're talking about, as you just mentioned, blogs, 
landing pages and web pages, you can lock them down to Teams. What we haven't covered yet and what's not available yet, but I'm assuming it's rolling out soon, is access to emails. And then, of course, there's going to be workflows, CTAs, Correct. and a whole bunch of other things. I would, as, I would assume social accounts, all that kind of stuff will come into being limited to Teams as well. And that's going to be a good thing. One other thing to mention about this, though, is you can turn it on and off. Just because you've set up Teams and it's now available, you still actually have to enable it in settings. You actually have to go into your Teams and Users area and say, yes, I am going to set up content partitioning. Okay. And then the final thing to remember is if you're a super admin, of course, it doesn't apply. You have access to everything. So just something to keep in mind. If you think you've got super admin users and you're going to content partition them into certain Teams, it's not going to work, obviously. All right. Another thing that we've found that's really great is the membership options for pages. And this is the bit that create a password protected page or content areas that people can actually access. Yeah, that's right. So you can password protect pages, kind of like a global password, and then anyone that's got the password can access it. But they've got this new option, which is uh, list protected. Correct. So if someone's in a particular smart list, yes. uh, you can say they have access to it. Uh, which is great. You can have a list for customers or a list for, well, opportunities or things like that. I think it's really nice. And the way they handle it, which is still could do some refinement, is when people are added to that list and given access, they get sent a a password setup process. You can't actually edit that. You can't um, brand it or anything yourself, which is perhaps something that will come in time. But it's still a very nice process, goes through, lets them... Sign up and, yeah, then they have access. I really like that idea of it being list-based. It kind of brings it on par with some, I remember some of the WordPress membership sites and things, how we've managed that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a lot more powerful. And the other great thing about lists is that they can be based not only on, say, lifecycle criteria, but you could put your own custom properties. And then, of course, you can pop people in and out of lists on workflows or whatever. You could even say, here's an example, you could actually have a list based on engagement, yep. which says, oh, if you visit 20 pages, oh, it unlocks another page exactly. or some other things as well. Yep. So the lists are really, you've got a ton of things that you could do. So mm. I'm, I'm really excited about that. A way we're going to look at doing that with our clients, if they're customers and they're, you know, valued customers, we'll just give them access to premium content that we share, uh, you know, we don't share normally on yes. the blog or anything like yep. that. We could even do it for, we could do it for HubShots listeners. <laughs> we could have, if you sign up for HubShots notifications, you'll give you access to some premium content. Some premium content. Yeah, there you go. All right. And finally, we've got an email sender frequency cap, and this is in enterprise. And why would we want this, Craig? Okay. So I've actually had this requested by clients a number of times. They say, oh, we set up all these workflows each of the workflows has got to nurture. It's sending out all emails. We don't want people getting bombarded with too many emails. How do we protect them from accidentally getting into all these different nurture workflows and getting 20 yep. emails on one day or 20 emails in a week? And we're normally pretty careful about planning that kind of stuff out and then taking and them out of sure. lists yep. and, you know, unenrolling them and all that kind of stuff. Here's what you can do. You can just say, oh, okay, you're concerned. Let's put a cap. And it's mm-hmm. like a it's like a portal-wide Cap, yep. where you say they'll get no more than four emails in a week or whatever. Yep. So you can set that cap. It's got nice caveats, though. Of course, it won't apply to transactional emails, yep. which is good. You wouldn't want them getting capped. And you can actually send an email to say, ignore that setting. So if it's part of a nurture that you absolutely want to always go out and never be blocked, people have been wanting this for ages. So it's great to see that finally there. 
I think it's a shame that it's in enterprise, though. I'd like to have seen that in pro. pro. I think there's a exactly. ton of pro yes. um, clients that would really want that as well. That's right. If you're in the product marketing team, we'd love to see that in pro. <laughs> yeah, you can see someone's incentivized on upsells there. You know, it's like we need to upsell enterprise. And, uh, and well, fair enough. You know, it's their product. They can do what they want. We'll... All right. Content marketing item of the week, Craig. And this is something I discovered when I was looking for some stuff on Gumtree and I got this landing page. I'm like, what, what is this? And you know what it was? It was a great example of a content marketing piece and landing page. And it was the Gumtree secondhand economy report. Now if I put a link to it. It's a great landing page. Like I, I was so surprised. I went, Craig, have a look at this. And you were like, wow, that's amazing. And just the stats. So I wanted to highlight, I would encourage people to look at it. Look at the personas they're targeting. There's some really clear personas they're targeting. They even have pictures of them. They even kind of have what they would want to buy. And they, they even have clear call to actions to go and, go and look at those particular things. The information that they've used. So they've, they've commissioned someone to actually put this report together. And it's done very well. Like, it's a great example if you wanted to model something it's a great example and just the way they've laid everything out it's just it was refreshing it was excellent yeah when you showed me this i was like wow that's genius work yeah Yeah. and so there's no we should we should just explain what gumtree is if you're in australia you'll know gumtree true but if you're in the us it's kind of like it's like the secondhand marketplace it's kind of like ebay for um local that's right and ebay actually owned them i think they bought them a couple of years ago oh they are an ebay company you're quite right yeah no you're right yep so, so they're local. They're local eBay. <laughs> yeah, and and the whole idea of uh, eBay has been to push a lot of new and bigger sellers on there. Whereas the Gumtree's become anybody that wants to get rid of stuff and sell one-off things at not a high value. Yeah, I'm just going to check. They, do they have the Gumtree brand in the US? Maybe. Oh, I think they do. Oh, okay. There we go. So I thought it was an Australian-only thing because Gumtree being. You know, and it looks plan. sounds like a gum tree, doesn't it? <laughs> the koalas up the gum tree. <laughs> All right, on to something serious, the marketing tip of the week, Craig. All right, so last episode we were looking at, I forget what it was, but we said, oh, we must look at Google Ads search with remarketing overlaid. And we said, oh, Ian, you'll talk about it. So talk I about shall. It. So here I am going to talk about it. Now, why I'm going to talk about this is because I find many people don't actually do it on accounts that I've looked at. So there's going to be two things here, and I'm going to share the first one is adding a remarketing list in your search ads. Now, this wasn't possible probably like two years ago. And even now, I find a lot of people don't use it. But what this enables you to do is actually layer in a remarketing list to search ads that you're already running, which will tell Google to to show your ads if people are actually looking at other variations of things. And one of the things that it does do is give you more information about these people. So not only is it targeting them in a different manner, but also you're getting more data about them as to who they are, what they're interested in. And that's really the the real basis of it because what you can do is take that data and if you say, okay, if I think more women are actually buying this product, well, I want to increase the bids. If it's a woman, I want to increase the bid by 30% to target them better. So that's the thing with the remarketing list on search ads. It is a bit complicated. So I've put a link to an article there to have a look at it. 
But if you're running search ads, I would encourage you to have a look at that. All right. So can I just go back a step? So search ads means I'm in Google, I'm searching in the Google search engine. So that's a search ad. Retargeting means... Remarketing. Remarketing means they've visited Visited my website. And now you're saying, well, if they're in the Google search, putting in a query to search for, and Google knows that they have visited your site, combine those two to do some extra things. Correct. And so this is great for competitors, right? Right. So they've been to your site, but now they're searching for competitors. You can appear in those search results as a result. So that's a good example. So they do a a brand search for someone else, but you capture them. Yeah. So that's the first one. Mm -hmm. The second one, I want to talk about layering in in in-market audiences with Google search ads. And you can also do this as a separate campaign in essence as a in-market audience on display. Now, why I'm going to tell you that this is important is that previously if you were doing Google AdWords, a lot of this was not available and they've progressively rolled it out. And why I want to talk about this is because there's an opportunity there. So I'll give you an example. We have a customer that finances trucks. So we run a lot, lot of ads to get people to inquire about finance when they're looking for trucks, semi-trailers, and so on. One thing we found was the quality of customer was okay, not great, right? So like, how do we make this better? And so this week we tried, I said, well, okay, we'll try this out. We've got nothing to lose, right? We'll try in-market audience that are people looking for utes, trucks, and I want to show them the ad. So I wanted to show them particular product features that our customer was offering And what we ended up finding out that we were getting a better quality of customer because they were in the market already searching for this particular vehicle. And then the ad that we were running, which was a display ad, was showing in there. So that's how we kind of layered this in. So basically you you were targeting people that had purchase intent in a sense. Correct. So just take a step back, explain what in-market means and in-market audience. So that we've got a marketing managers listening to this thing going, okay, I know what Google ads are. What's in-market audiences? Let me give you a very clear in-market description. <laughs> okay. In-market audiences, Craig, in a nutshell, is when Google understands that people are in the market or in that buying journey for a particular product. So it looks at their search history and what they're looking for, and basically puts them into one of these buckets. Now, this there are not buckets for everything. There's a lot of buckets for automotive. There is ones for gyms and fitness, and there are a whole bunch of other. I think there's like 1,800 different. There's a lot of home and garden ones Correct. and things like that, yeah. So it doesn't fit everything. And like I was talking to you before, you can see there are certain things that you might want to target that may not actually have any bearing about what you want to do. And then I said, well, hang on, if these people are in this particular market for this product, they actually visit these kind of places. So actually this might be a good in-market audience for you to target them through and layer on top in your display or your search advertising. Excellent. So what's the takeaways from marketing managers who may not be hands-on doing the AdWords themselves, but they're working with agencies? I guess it's chatting about these new features. And so give them the two um, the two little um, taglines to talk to their agencies about. <laughs> Are we using in-market audiences and a remarketing list in our search ads? There we go. Great advice. Okay, on to our HubSpot sales feature of the week, Craig. 
Now, I'm going to preface this is that we have not tried this and it's relatively new, but we really like the sound of it. And this is Playbooks, which is in HubSpot sales. One of the new features is that you're actually able to map a lot of these, like say call scripts or fact-finding documents into contact properties. So if you open it up for that contact, you can actually see all the values in there. So if someone goes, oh, I wonder, say Craig did a sales discovery call and then I access the contact, I go, I wonder what they actually said. All the data can come back directly into the playbook for that sales discovery call. And then if, if you tell me something different this time, I can update it and it'll get updated in the database. I thought that was really fantastic. I think it's really good as well. And as you said, I haven't used this. I've only watched their video talking it through just because I thought it was going to be a great fit for some of our clients to get in place. We actually don't have playbooks. But one of the things when I was going through this, I was like, we should have playbooks. <laughs> and this is just a great way of doing it in the product that's going to help me do it. You know, I guess as an it's ag- a systemization. It is. As an, as an agency, um, basically, we're always after optimum efficiency Efficiencies come through good processes and standards. Playbooks is just one part of that. And for marketing managers and sales managers listening to this, it's kind of like, well, how do you make your business more efficient and profitable? Uh, Well, one of them is having good processes. So playbooks are just part of that. So I really like this. And the part that you're highlighting is, yeah, when you have a playbook for someone to learn a script, they're doing a discovery call, as you say, oh, how long have you been in business? How big is your business? How many employees? Instead of just putting that into a Google Doc that gets attached to somewhere, it's like straight into the property that goes straight against the contact or the company or whatever. So it's there recorded in the system. The great thing about this, and you can tell why HubSpot's done it, right? They build these tools for themselves, I'm sure, is because someone's said, oh, we can save X number of hours every day if our salespeople don't have to put this in double entry. It's just part of the script. So I think it's a great idea. It's really cool. It's very wise. Don't you agree, Craig? It's practical. This is it. It's really practical and and efficient. Okay. Now the second bonus of the sales features of the week, Craig, is if you use Slack, you would appreciate this, is the slash commands in Slack. So the ability to, from within Slack, if you've got connected Slack to HubSpot, you can actually use Slack to query contacts, create tasks, and do some other exciting things. Yeah, well, the one I like is for you can just look up. Uh, well, you can actually look up playbooks. There you go. You can actually put oh, link, links. They there added you go. that they that in. But no, you can actually do search for contacts. Yes, and I think that's a really good one. So you just go your slash command. We've got a link to the slash commands. You can go to put in the slash command and then contact name. Bang. Oh, did you mean any of these? Yep, that one. Bang, and it puts it in the Slack channel. Yes. So for everyone else in the channel, oh, I can click through. I can go straight to that contact. I think that's really cool. You know what we should have? We should have a Slack tip of the week because. Basically, what do you run your business on? G Suite, HubSpot, and Slack. Slack. And probably Teamwork as well for Correct. agencies. But most companies, that's it, right? Exactly. So, yeah, we should have a Slack tip of the week in the show. All right. On to opinion of the week, Craig. Information versus confirmation. Yeah, look, just another reminder here about confirmation bias, which is basically where you seek out content to confirm your existing views. This is confirmation bias, and we all do it, right? So it's yeah. not as though... Um, pointing out anything that I don't do myself. The reason I say this is because, uh, so for example, someone came out and they said, oh, you hear that uh, Facebook, uh, all the younger crowd are leaving it in droves. It's, they're no longer there. I'm like, oh, well, I've seen those reports. I'm sure it's dropping. But, you know, when there's 2 billion people on the platform, I'm sure there's still a few left. But 
they went searching for stuff to show that Facebook's not an option for their audience, which is a bit younger, right? I'm like, uh, so I'm sure you'll find articles to prove that. And I know I have a bias the other way, so I'm sure I can go and find articles that say that's not the case. Of course, what do we always say, Ian? Test and measure. Test and measure, that's right. But look, test and measure is a good way of getting over it. And I think if there's ever that kind of thing, you've got to ask yourself as a marketing manager, what are my biases? And is this actually information or confirmation that I'm searching for? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. I think this is really important. And, you know, we work in particular industry segments. And what's true for one customer that might be technically in the same industry segment is not true for the other customer that is in a similar space. So I would really encourage people always test and measure and validate your assumptions to make sure that you're getting the best possible result. Now, Craig, retirement of the week. We had to sneak this one in here. Yes. Now, this is John Loomer, the Facebook expert, and he wrote an article about turning off the Facebook Messenger bot and why he did that. Now, I, did, I haven't read this whole article, but you have. So just tell me why he has done this. Okay, so, well, two reasons. It was taking up too much time and it was costing him too much money. So John Loomer got onto the whole Messenger bot thing early. like I know, think we've spoken about it on the show. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm sure we have probably 50 episodes. Correct. But Messenger bots, they were enormously effective at the start because they were a novelty and they were working. But in his particular case, he has had some what I'd call out of ordinary biases because he's testing it and promotes it. He's had a lot of people go on and try and break it Mm. for him, which takes up a lot of support time. So there is that. But you take that out. He was basically saying that he gets a much better response from email. So he's got his email database. He sends out a newsletter to his, I don't know, he's probably got 50,000, 100,000 people. Gets much better signups than that than if he does an ad campaign to Messenger and then the Messenger bot sort of signs them up for extra information and just the overhead of that. Yes. So I thought it was really interesting. I think it's worth marketing managers going into this because you know how there's a window of opportunity for everything? It's almost like some of these bots. We were saying this last episode. There's an opportunity for good bots, but everyone's got bots now and it's becoming a really bad experience. You know, marketers ruin everything. But here's a case where John Loomer's gone. it's, It's basically a post of common sense where he takes through and he said, well, he's tested this stuff and it's just not viable anymore. So he's turning it off. I think that's great. You know, there's going to be, you know how there's like the trend 2017, 18 was the trend of bots. It's almost like 2019, 20 will be turning it off. You know, <laughs> <laughs> turning our, bot- tip, our tip for 2019. <laughs> yeah, turn off bots kind of thing. Yeah. All right, Craig, now resource of the week. And this is do it topic clusters correctly how to use them correctly yeah over on siege media because you know how hubspot's got their content strategy tool which is all around topic clusters pillar pages that kind of thing we've spoken about it many times so this article on siege media which i love the guys at siege but the author she was actually saying actually you gotta be careful because what they're experiencing is people saying oh this whole content pillar and clusters topic can you implement for us and they're like well you're actually a really small niche site it's not appropriate Pillar mm. pages are really for, you know, targeting broader terms. Yep. If you're in a really specific area, it's not going to work. So she goes through a whole bunch of criteria or examples where they do and don't fit. So if you're getting on, you know, you're investigating pillar pages and topic clustering, just a good one to read. What's nice is Matt Barbie jumps in in the comments and kind of says, yep, 
good point this, although I'd say this on that. And there's some good discussion there. Yeah, so, good. yeah, worth a read. Yes, yeah, so definitely at the end of this article, it says who should use topic clusters. Read that. And they say clean up before you cluster. <laughs> so it's really, really good. And, and I've heard in a few podcast episodes that I've been listening to, people talking about regularly reviewing your content and doing that on a quarterly or a half yearly basis and being diligent about it, just like how you would look at your statistics. You know what? I'd better do that. I just I think we should all it. do that, Craig. Do as, do, as we, do as I say, not as I do, because, yeah, it's time for us to do a content audit. Yeah, Correct. All right, quote of the week, Craig. Not all marketing dashboards are created equal. If a marketing dashboard is not providing insights that link to business results, it's just a pretty distraction. And this is from Tom Fishburne. Yeah, aka Marketunas. So he he writes cartoons about uh, marketing does. debacles, and we've got one in the show notes, which is great about dashboards. You'll know it as soon as you see his style. Exactly. You'll go, oh yeah, I've seen yeah. plenty of his. It's great. What I didn't realize with his cartoons, when you click through, he actually normally has a pretty good article behind them. All right. Yeah, he's like the Seth Godin of marketing, of marketing. specifically. <laughs> yeah, he's always got great advice and great insights. He's yes. a smart guy. Well, he's actually a marketing guy. From way back, and he just happens to do cartoons particularly well also. You know what? This is absolutely right. This is one of the things I discovered with a customer of ours, that someone had set up some whole bunch of stuff for them in HubSpot. And after a year of working with them, I was sitting in this meeting and had this epiphany where their whole sales team, like their numbers are on a board in their office. And basically what she was after was, does that board match what I'm seeing here in HubSpot? And once I realized that, I'm like, well, you just want to make sure that the numbers on that board is reflecting what's happening here. She goes, that's what I want. And that's all she was after. She was not after how many clicks. She didn't care how many Facebook likes she had. It was the dollars at the end of the line here that was the most important thing to her. And I think that made a massive difference to how they operated. And now even discovered some things, even in the uh, sales lifecycle stages, some of the settings I got incorrectly where the numbers were inconsistent, where I'd actually said people need to actually go through all of the life cycle stages, not and as people jumped from one to the other and missed a few, they actually got left oh, out of that. that's when that was happening. That's exactly right. right. So it uncovered a few things and then it went deeper into, okay, well, now I want to find out how many leads gets distributed to each salesperson on that team so I can actually see who is being effective and who's not being effective. And it's just the whole conversation about the data we get and how we use it in the business has totally transformed on its head in the way we talk to Yeah, them. that's great. You know what? I'm going to tie that right back to the start. We we're talking about personas. You know, yes. I was talking about people moving in and out of yep. personas. In that meeting, which was a strategy meeting, setting yep. up because we're trying to think what their personas are. And what was interesting is in the room we had, I think, four or five different people. One was the product owner. One was technical person. One was the CFO because they were there because they wanted to make sure right at the start, as we designed personas, life cycle stages and everything, that we could report on it. And there we were at the strategy session for planning out, you know, how it's going to be implemented in HubSpot. And one of the key things we're looking at right at the start is what are the reports and the dashboards that we need at the end because we don't want to kind of get two-thirds of the way through and then find, oh, we can't even report on this because we had some obscure personas or some weird custom properties, that kind of thing. So it's absolutely right, you know, and this dashboard has to reflect the business, but not only reflect what actually is happening, but in a way that actually shows them meaningful 
you know, what, where they're going, actually give them insight onto where the, where the company growth is. Absolutely, Craig. All right, we've got some bonus links of the week from HubSpot Research and an interesting article on how to rank for the new position zero with featured clips. Do you know what featured clips are? Yes. Oh, I didn't. I Well, I've only discovered them. And actually, you know what's been interesting? I've just been seeing some interesting way they've been displaying results on mobile with the URLs right at the top. Oh, Have right. You noticed no, that? I hadn't seen that. So it was on for like a week for me and then it disappeared. It's back yeah, to normal. Yeah, okay. And I was like, oh, that's a bit different. So it's just really interesting. And, you know, like this is, again, Matt Barbie in, at HubSpot talks about position zero a lot and about optimizing for it. And here's another opportunity that we have. Yeah, well, so I'll just explain what featured clips are for listeners that may not know because I didn't really, I wasn't aware of this. But featured snippets, we know, will have some text and usually an image as well for a search. You know, it just appears above the search results. It's kind of like this featured box. Okay. Featured clips are a video to the same effect. And sometimes it'll just play the parts in the video that answer the question. Oh. So someone searches for a thing. Here's a video that, that answers it, but not just, ah, bang, the whole watch the 20-minute yeah. video. It's like, oh, here's 30 seconds in the middle. Prepared, wow. yeah. So from YouTube, of course, not just any video, okay. YouTube. <laughs> um and then this clip, so the HubSpot research goes in, it's like, well, how do you try and rank for that? And, well, one of the key factors, it's pretty simple at the moment, is make your video title exactly match the search query. So that kind of gets you in Google's radar. All the videos, I was saying, uh, tend to get a bit of a boost, but something to be looking at. So if you've got a lot of video content, you might just want to tweak the titles to relate to common search terms to try and rank for those position zero featured clips. There we go. Well, there ended the show, Craig. Well, listeners, we'd love you to rate, review, and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts because it does help us. And if you'd like to listen to us while going to bed, <laughs> that, that's also great too. But until episode 142, Craig. Catch you later, Ian. Hey there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hubshots. For show notes and the latest HubSpot news and tips, please visit us at hubshots.com.